Heavenly Father, um, speak to us in a living, active way this morning, we pray. Uh, thank you for the preservation of this text throughout history, which gives us a window into Jesus' life and ministry and his teaching, and particularly what it means to follow him. And we know that you've preserved this for our benefit, uh, and you use it uh, through the work of your Spirit to speak to us and to instruct us. So please do that this morning, we pray, so that we can more faithfully walk the track that you'll have us walk through life, serving you, and that we can bring you glory and fulfill your purposes for us and through us. Amen. So there will be time for, <clears throat> there will be time for comments and questions at the end. So please do, if you have any comments or questions, uh, participate in that way uh, at the end of the sermon. So we're tracking with Jesus, uh, if you recall, on the road to Jerusalem. And on the way, uh, Jesus is teaching us about discipleship, uh, what it means to follow him. And the focus of today's text is very much mission to the world. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 9, uh, Jesus had sent out his inner group of 12 disciples. And if you recall, he had given them authority uh, to preach the gospel, uh, to exercise evil, evil spirits, and to heal people. But now, as chapter 10 opens, we see a broadening of the mission team. The call to spread the kingdom uh, is not just limited to the apostles. Uh, look again at verse 1. After this, the Lord anointed, appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. So you see, God commissions ordinary people in his mission. Uh, Jesus does not limit ministry to just a set few, but extends it to all who would follow him. Uh, every cross-carrying disciple is also a cross-proclaiming witness. Uh, there is no such thing as a conscientious objector in Jesus' spiritual battle. And therefore, again, invites each of us to ask that fundamental question, uh, who can I pray for and who can I reach out to? Well, it's not long before we are confronted with the urgent necessity of every member ministry. Verse 2, he told them, uh, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Uh, go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Well, that's not very encouraging, is it? Uh, lambs among wolves. Why would Jesus use such a disconcerting metaphor just before sending them out. Well, as you know, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And Jesus wants them and us to be mentally prepared for the realities of ministry. If they weren't prepared, uh, what would be the danger when they first experienced opposition and rejection? They would give up. They'd say, I didn't sign up for this. And so there's a warning which followers of Jesus have to heed today as much as then. Don't be deflected or silenced by rejection or opposition. But wonderfully paired with the warning is also an encouragement. Uh, the harvest is plentiful. Uh, when we experience disinterest or even antagonism towards the gospel, 
The danger is that we extrapolate the experience. We begin to assume that because these people weren't interested, that nobody is interested. But no, the harvest is plentiful. There are plenty of people out there whom the Lord will call into his kingdom. If you recall, when the Apostle Paul was proclaiming the gospel in the city of Corinth, uh, he certainly experienced some encouragements, but also some stern opposition. Uh, the Jews' hearts were hard as nails, and so he leaves them, and he takes the gospel to the Gentiles. And there is evidently a point where Paul is so discouraged in that ministry by the opposition from the wolves that he's in danger of giving up. And how does God encourage him? Uh, Acts chapter 18 the risen Lord Jesus says this, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. It's the same idea. The harvest is plentiful. Uh, it's rooted in the doctrine of election. God has chosen those who are His. And when Jesus says to Paul, I have many people in this city. He is talking about those whom have not yet come to faith, but whom will come to faith because God has chosen them as his people. So, as gospel proclaimers, we of course are sowing the seed, but it is God who will cause the seed to spring to life in those he has chosen. And you see, it takes the pressure off us. We're not responsible for people's response but we are responsible to proclaim. And God uses our proclamation, but we must keep proclaiming. Uh, that's why Jesus goes on to say in verse 2, again, so uh, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Uh, there is a shortage of harvest workers to share the message. Uh, what's the solution? Well, ultimately, it is to pray to the Lord of the harvest for more gospel workers, harvest workers. Uh, if you don't already, uh, why not subscribe to the prayer letters of mission organizations, which uh, obviously keep you informed of the needs, of what you can pray for, and also uh, you can give to. Uh, in the outline of the sermon, I've included uh, the links to the websites of major mission organizations in Australia. But as I reflected on this, I thought it rather odd that Jesus should give those he is sending out on mission this particular instruction. Uh, you think he would say something like, uh, hey guys, don't forget to pray for success as you proclaim the gospel. Uh, don't just do it in your own strength now. But he doesn't say that. He instructs them to pray for more harvest workers to be sent out. But then I realized, actually, they are the same thing. These he is sending out should pray to the Lord of the harvest for success in their mission endeavors because through more people coming to faith, more harvest workers are raised up. In other words, pray to be part of the solution. Pray that through your prayerful gospel-sharing efforts, God will raise up more gospel proclaimers. 
Now, as a result of the current pandemic, uh, we have become very familiar with the term the R number. That is, of course, the rate of reproduction, in the case of the pandemic, of the virus. If one person infects two other people, who in turn infects two other people, uh, very quickly uh, the numbers become huge. Uh, here's an image of it, the rate of two. And you can see that burgeoning pyramid there. Now the same can be said for the spread of the gospel. If each Christian was instrumental in bringing at least two to Christ, who in turn brought two others to Christ, the numbers would increase exponentially. Uh, to view it the other way around, if an infected person is successfully isolated and quarantined, then the whole pyramid of infected people is eliminated. Uh, you get the point. How tragic if we allow ourselves to be isolated and quarantined, if we don't prayerfully step out to share the gospel. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest for success in our gospel initiatives so that there will be more workers to send out into the harvest field. Now, the next part of Jesus' instruction has caused considerable debate amongst Christians as to its modern-day application. Verse 4. Uh, do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. Does this mean there is no need to secure support and provision for Christians in full-time ministry? Uh, should they just set out and trust God for the funds and the resources required? Well, certainly some Christians have had the conviction to run their ministries trusting the Lord to provide uh, without ever approaching people with requests for assistance. Uh, George Muller uh, his extensive ministry to orphans in 19th century Bristol in the UK would be one example. But that is not the norm. And this is not a proof text in support of such an approach. Uh, on what basis do I say that? Well, it is clear that Jesus viewed this particular mission of the 72 as a short-term pioneer missionary work. Uh, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and the disciples were sent out to prepare the way. And this aspect of his instructions were unique to that time and to that place. Take no purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. Uh, notice how Jesus' instructions change just prior to him going to the cross. Uh, by the time of Luke chapter 22, Jesus is now preparing his followers for the long haul of mission after his death and resurrection. And this is what he says to them. Then Jesus asked them, when I, send you without, when I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, uh, did you lack anything? And nothing they answered. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. So, it is appropriate and it is wise for full-time gospel workers to both raise support and to receive a generous, willing response from God's people. It's interesting also that the lack of a purse or bag would play an important role in the mission of the 72. Because they went without any resources, 
not only did they have to depend on God, but also on the people of the town to which they went. If they had taken their visa cards, they could have checked in at the local Holiday Inn. But without any purse, they were thrown on the goodwill and the hospitality of the town folk. And that in itself forced a decision. Uh, would they be welcomed into their homes as they proclaimed the gospel of peace? Or would they be spurned? Uh, verse 5. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house, which is a way of proclaiming the gospel that it is possible to have peace with God through the meshes they bear. If a man of peace, a literal translation would be a man destined for peace, is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. So, as they proclaim, some will welcome them and some will reject them. Some will become people of peace in the kingdom and others will reject that offer of peace. Uh, next, Jesus addresses some of the practical issues flowing out of being a full-time gospel worker, dependent on others for support. Verse 7. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. You see, the food and board was a form of wages for those itinerant gospel workers. Uh, remember the Levites in the Old Testament? Uh, the people to whom they ministered were supposed to support them. That was their responsibility. And so... Uh, gospel workers shouldn't be embarrassed to accept gospel wages, uh, hospitality in this case. I recall discussing the application of this passage with a Christian friend in the UK uh, back in the uh, year 2000. Uh, this particular friend worked uh, as a merchant banker. As a result, his work hours were very long, but his salary was very good. Uh, he, in turn, was very generous in supporting gospel ministry. But he said, and he shared this, as I talked to him about this particular passage and this application of this particular verse, he said on several occasions, uh, when he had uh, wanted to extend generosity to some people involved in and going into full-time ministry, he had found some of them uh, a bit reluctant to talk about money and even a bit awkward or embarrassed to talk about it. Do you see, the underlying principle is clear. Uh, Full-time gospel workers deserve to receive appropriate financial support, especially from those to whom they minister. Uh, this is an appropriate opportunity for me to thank you for your ongoing support of me in this ministry. Uh, even though we are few in number, uh, you always respond with generosity when faced with a looming shortfall. And so I want to thank you for your generosity. Uh, the principle also applies to our mission partners. Remember the pillars and the Schwartz. Uh, when the church finances are tight, as ours are, uh, we inevitably seek to cut back on all spending that is not absolutely essential. But of course, we should view the spending of supporting the pillars and the Schwartz as essential, as essential as supporting the minister. And so we must do all possible to also maintain our support to them. For the workers deserve their wages. So, on the one hand, uh, those in paid gospel ministry shouldn't be embarrassed to accept people's generosity. 
but they must also be aware of falling off the other side of the horse, because verse 7 continues. Uh, Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. This is a warning against becoming materialistic in ministry to those who are in ministry. Uh, The 72 may have been tempted to move around from house to house in order to increase their comfort. Maybe they're tempted to move to another house which has ensuite bedrooms or even a swimming pool. Or they may have been tempted to drop subtle hints to their hosts to upgrade the food. No, says God and Jesus, don't. Just be content with what you are provided with. Uh, The underlying principle for gospel workers is being content with God's provision. Don't be unduly influenced by the size of the manse or the benefits package. In verse 9, Jesus continues to instruct them on their mission objectives. He says this, Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. You see, the message that they proclaimed would be authenticated by the miraculous deeds that they performed. Now, views amongst Christians these days vary as to whether the healing gifts still operates today. Uh, Personally, I'm persuaded by the case that rests on uh, the whole point of uh, whether contemporary healing ministries can provide a level of consistency in their results on a par with that of the New Testament's gifted healers. Uh, The fact that they can't causes me to see this message authenticating authority to heal being unique to this initial period of gospel proclamation. But let me add two qualifying statements. Uh, Firstly, this is not to say that God can't or won't miraculously heal people today. He can, and on occasions he does, and we should still pray for him to do so. Uh, Secondly, uh, this is not to say that gospel proclamation is no longer authenticated by deeds. Uh, What did Jesus say would be the genuine authenticating hallmark of his followers? John 13, verse 35. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. People will see the reality of the gospel in the quality of our community life together. This, of course, links back to the stark challenge that we considered last week. Will we be a warm, welcoming, inclusive, hospitable congregation who authenticates the gospel we proclaim with the quality of our love, particularly for each other. Finally, Jesus reminds his followers that if people do reject the gospel, ultimately it is not us they are rejecting, but him. Verse 16. He who listens to you listens to me, but he who rejects you rejects me, but he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. If people do reject Christ, uh, they are bringing judgments down on their own heads. 
uh, they are effectively excluding themselves from God's people. Uh, Verse 10, when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. Uh, To wipe the dust off their feet was a sign of rejecting and excluding this town from God's people. As far as God was concerned, their town was now foreign soil, and so they wiped it from their feet. And what's more, the greater the revelation and exposure to gospel teaching that people have, the greater will be the severity of God's judgment if they reject it. Verse 12. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the, that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe for, to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For in the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. Those to whom much has been given, uh, much will be demanded. And so our responsibility is to proclaim the gospel and to ensure that we also have soft hearts that are ongoingly responsive to the gospel, being quick to repent in response to the challenge of God's word to us. Let me pray for us, and then I'll open up to comments and questions. Heavenly Father, help us to be uh, gospel-breathing, gospel-imbibing, gospel-living-out, and gospel-proclaiming people. Uh, Help us to, we pray, be powerfully used in your kingdom purposes to your glory. Help us to that end, we pray. Amen.